Good afternoon, everyone. I just shed my jacket. I I generally try to keep it on. I feel like I, for the most part, should. That was the standard of dress in Worldwide Church of God, uh, that we come before God in our best and looking as good as we can. but that was primarily in this Western world of temperate climate uh, that he was reared in the business world he came from. But even during Worldwide Church of God, there were certain places where you didn't wear a jacket. Uh, I went to the feast in Hawaii several times, and uh, everybody wore a flowery shirt and light duty pants because it was hot. And... Uh, when I was stationed in Florida. Generally then, the ministry was supposed to go out and visit in suit and tie, or at least a jacket and a tie. But down there I took a, I wore usually a short sleeve white shirt and a tie. Uh, forgot about the jacket. And then when I get to Bahamas, there was a temptation to even take the tie off. Oh, it was humid over there most of the time. So, in the tropics, it's a little different. Uh, at the feast in the Africa, I would wear a jacket. But when I was over there in the summer, uh-uh, not traveling all over South Africa and other countries there, no way. So, the main thing, I think, is we come before God with the best mind and attitude and spirit we can, and dress perhaps better than we do on a weekday just to show respect to him, but as hot as it was getting up here, I decided not. Nah, let's forget this. Even here in Arizona, it gets pretty hot. So anyway, that aside, matter of, I guess, protocol in some respects, uh, our president doesn't understand much protocol, doesn't understand much of anything, frankly, but uh, he is bumbling around the Middle East thinking an absolute fool of himself with some of the stupid comments he's making and went before the king of Saudi Arabia and even offered a fist bump, which is way out of protocol. He just, he's making us a laughing stock. And I think I understand why he's there. Somebody, I, some article I read shed some light on that is that the big boys, the money boys, the big corporations, and the elites or Illuminati or whatever they call themselves today, uh, are the ones who control what goes on in the world. And the politicians are simply bought by them and do their bidding, uh, presidents included, if they're smart enough to even do so. But the comment that was made that was, we have a bumbling clown in there right now, and what the Federal Reserve is doing, it's not federal at all, it's private banks. They just put federal on it so people would think it had to do with the government, but it doesn't. They even go to the illusion of saying the president appoints the, appoints the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Well, technically, that's true. But what they do is hand him a list of three or four or five names, and say, choose one. These are all acceptable to us. So it's the banks calling the shots. 
And to a great degree, it is Edomite bankers behind the scenes, as Obadiah clearly shows, who are the real powers and who are overseeing our downfall and will be so happy about it. Finally, Esau getting the comeuppance on brother Jacob. So that's what's going on. And the big corporations are the ones that control virtually everything. Uh, those people in Congress do what they're told. The judges do what they're told. Uh, and they create controversy where they want to create controversy. So they said, they put him in as the puppet clown so that people won't see that creating trillions of dollars and then raising the interest rates and the things they do to help bring this thing down, they can blame it on the clown. And people will look at the clowning that's going on and uh, not at them. So they kind of remove the attention. It's like a magician. You know, he's doing this while he does that and doesn't want you to know. And that's kind of the way the game's being played. So you kind of have to look where uh, it's not always the most obvious to see what's really happening. So I think he's over there and was sent over there probably to help stir up trouble in the Middle East because they knew good and well he couldn't put two sentences together when he went there. So why send him unless you expect him to bumble around? It just That's just what they do. Anyway, let's get on with things more important to us and more important ultimately to the world than that. But we, knew, we do watch the demise of our nation and sigh and cry for the abominations we see. Last week I started into Ephesians as a takeoff from uh, Revelation 2.1 and the message to Ephesus because those people had begun to lose a lot of their first zeal and love and interest and they'd gotten lackadaisical and perhaps taking the information they had and knew for granted and as I said last week, Paul recognized the same thing in that church. So when he wrote the book to, of, of Ephesians to, the, to Ephesus, he addresses it pretty much the same way. And what he's trying to do here is create interest, excitement, motivation, hope, joy, love, faith in people who we're sort of taking it for granted. And that is a human thing to do, whether it's at work or in a marriage or school or church or wherever you are, we begin to settle down and take things for granted. Remember it is how it is when you first go on a new job and you're not experienced with it and how uh, uptight maybe, how excited, how interested, how much harder you strive because you want to be approved and you want to do the job well and you want to fit in so you give it a lot of extra effort which is what we did we came in the church and then over time we're not careful it can be humdrum so Paul focuses here on the importance of our calling on the importance of God and of Christ himself so that it might stir them up stir us up uh lest we take these things for granted and miss out, because we certainly don't want to do that. 
And he goes through and shows that God had this in mind before the foundations of the world. I talked quite a bit about predestination last week, and uh, it just hit me a little bit ago that what does, what does the word predestination mean, or predestined? When you go on a trip, you figure out a destination, don't you? So, once you mark that on the map and start figuring out how to get there, you have predestinated your trip. Your destination was determined ahead of time. You didn't just pull out of the driveway and start down some road and say, well, let's see, I wonder where we want to go. Now, maybe for a day trip, you might do that once in a while, but if it's a long trip, you have it pretty well figured out just where it is you want to go. And in a larger sense, then, God has and did, before they laid the foundations of the earth, have a plan and a purpose and a destination for all humans. The destination that they had planned for human beings was the kingdom of God. And that would at one time or another be open to everyone who has ever lived. Because everyone will have a chance. Now the Protestants have corrupted that and come to the point where they do their once saved, always saved thing and that you can't fall away because you're, once you say Jesus, uh, you're going to be there regardless of what you do. And with predestination, they put the same thing on it. That God predestinated me to be in his kingdom and I'm going to be there. Tough luck, you guys. Uh, most of you are going to hell uh, because there's only a few of us who have been called. If they look at it in that term. Because most people aren't even so-called Christians today on earth. Out of nearly eight billion, uh, there's a very paltry few who even claim Christianity. But God chose a destination for everyone. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Any human being, born or aborted, doesn't matter. They're all going to have a chance. And it doesn't say predestinated to be into the kingdom, but predestinated to the adoption of children to himself. Now, obviously, he's not adopting everyone on earth today. And he says that it is a matter of fear not little flock, and then it would be small, and then the book of Revelation limits the first resurrection to 144,000, not 60 billion that may have lived on the earth since Adam. So this is obviously talking of a smaller group, and others will be called in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, but they have the same destination. Now, predestination, predestinated does not mean then you'll be in the kingdom of God necessarily. It means you will have an opportunity to be adopted and called before the end of the plan has come. It's, a, it's an important distinction. And on top of that, if he had predestinated every human being before the foundations of the earth, 
to be in the kingdom, then there could be nobody that fails. And yet he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be some who don't make it. So not everybody was predestined to be in the kingdom. We were all predestinated to be called at some time. And then judged on whether we follow God's ways or not. When our time comes, be it now as it is with us, or be it the millennium or the great white throne judgment. So he is fair. So everybody gets a chance. I've had people argue with me that, well, people like Stalin and Hitler and whoever they happen to dislike and call despots, uh, they're already lost. Bible doesn't say that. They were never converted. They never knew the true God. Uh, they might have been rascals from the day they were born and not, but there are a lot of rascals born that don't kill millions of people. So everybody will have a chance. And even those who won't bow their knees will have their knees broken and they will bow before this is over. So they're going to be made to be humbled and then taught the truth and see if then they will follow it. And I subscribe to the fact that the one who could create the moon and the stars that I look at at night and the sun and the beautiful clouds and the rain and the trees and the squirrels and the deer and the fish, anybody that can do that can make a plan work. He's not a savior. He makes things happen. That's the God I worship, is the one who creates and does and makes and succeeds. And I believe he can succeed in bringing you and me to salvation if we will but yield to him. That's all we have to do is yield and do as he says, and he will get us there. And his part in salvation is so much greater than ours. Because we are deceitful and desperately wicked, and we do rebel, and we want to do things that are contrary to the law by nature. So he has ways of teaching, of testing, of chastening, paddling. He has ways to lead us toward his kingdom, to work his salvation in us. And he knows very well that everyone he calls during this age, as these Ephesians were, are having their only chance. So he works directly and individually, closely, with each one of us now. He's not working with the people out in the world. He's not working with the people in the Christian churches in any manner in the way that he is with you and me. Because he only selects or chooses a few to work with. And I think the prophecy has been fulfilled through Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide that many would be called. Now to God, in the context of calling for the first resurrection, many means just enough to choose for the 144,000. He doesn't need billions to do that, but he can call somewhat over that number and work with them, and he's going to see that most of them make it. But there will be a few, perhaps, who fall away or give up or whatever and don't endure to the end. But he won't lose many.
because he is a successful God. Uh, a human father generally doesn't lose too many children. Uh, they don't all starve to death under normal conditions. They don't all get killed out of some stupid stupidity once in a while. But as a human father, we look out for our kids. So do our mothers. I know, you know, and my mother, we didn't have a fence around the mobile home we were living in when I was a little kid. So she'd go out with a stick and draw a line on the ground. That was the fence. She didn't want me out in the street. And brother, if I crossed that line, I wouldn't have thought of it this way at that time, but all hell broke loose. <laughs> I had my little fanny tan good until I got back inside the line and stayed there. So she was careful with me. And so was my dad. And so are we. And so is our Father in Heaven. And we do not live by chance. You and I here aren't governed by chance alone. Now, Solomon makes it clear in the book of Ecclesiastes that human beings generally live by time and chance. But he is looking over us carefully and numbers our hairs and he knows exactly what's going on in our lives and in our minds. And he's working with us. And if we get off the path, he finds a way to hurt us back. Now that's, and he was using the ministry here in terms of the Apostle John in Revelation. And he's using Paul here in Ephesians to do just that. Because those people were beginning to, eh, uh, meh, whatever. So Paul says, I think I'll write them a letter. I think I'll remind them of some things and include them in on maybe things they don't quite understand. So, yes, we had a destination in mind, and then he adopted us, called us, to put us squarely on the road toward that destination. The world around us is wandering around not knowing where they're going, but we know the destination. To be kings and rulers in the world tomorrow is what we're called to be. That's where we're headed. That's the goal. And he is training us to be kings and priests. He's not training us to be barbers and motel maids. He's training us to be kings and priests. And we have to be aware that he wants us to become mighty and noble in spirituality, and to be the nobility for the millions of people who are living in the millennium and great white throne judgment. We're to be there as kings and priests. Now, some of you girls might say, well, I don't want to be a king. Well, you have trouble understanding that analogy a little more, perhaps, than a man does. But then we have our problem, too. i got to be a bride, and all that that means. And to me, a bride is a beautiful woman. And I don't want to become a beautiful woman. <laughs> you know. But I'm looking at it from a human standpoint. And God is making a bigger analogy. And we have to understand within that that we will function as helpers to Him. 
And there may or may not be male and female in the kingdom of God. The Bible does not say clearly on that. It says something about being as the angels in heaven who apparently don't have gender. So there's male, female, and none, but not 69 others. But he doesn't say for sure in there. Uh, You can't find it whether we will still have those characteristics. We know that the Father and the Son are male and that they are shaped like males. That's what they are. Uh, And we are made in their image. But a woman is made in their image too, just not quite exactly the same. Just a little different. Quite a little different, actually. Um, Thank God. And God has made us to live together in harmony as one. And that's the goal and the purpose so that we might learn here as male and female to be one as the Father and the Son are one. The minds work alike. The goals, the purposes, the things we're trying to accomplish as a family are the same. You know, if a husband and wife have a goal in their child rearing, they have a goal in business, they have a goal in how their home will be, and they work together, then that comes closer to happening. But if they're pulling against each other all the time, that doesn't work so hot. So we have to learn to become as one where we think along the same lines with the same goals that each does his part to accomplish that. And it's like a church congregation. Uh, We come from all different backgrounds, all different areas of culture. And God wants us here to learn in spite of differences in thinking and background and personality, every way you can name, we're different as human beings. Every individual is an individual. None to, no two are just alike. Even identical twins aren't just alike. They're pretty close. But he wants us to learn to live together in harmony. And I think the the body shows us that, as Paul says in the first Corinthians. Uh, we don't all look exactly the same. An arm on a, one human being and a leg look quite a bit different. An ear and a mouth look quite a bit different. But they all have to work together in harmony as parts to make the body accomplish its goal. And we have to do the same. Our goal is to come to be close, to come to love each other, to come to work together to fulfill the purposes of God. And he wants us to be a happy, healthy, uh, compliant, working together, coordinating group of people thinking as one in our goal and purpose. And that's a job. <laughs> but it is something we all work toward. And, and what is then the goal of the congregation? It's the same, really, as, the, as your goal. Your goal is to become just like the Father and the Son. 
in everything you do and in everything you think. And our goal as a congregation is to accomplish the goals of the congregation in becoming one as the Father and Son are one. And as Christ will be one with his bride, very close, working together in harmony and peace. So it's hard enough in a marriage to work together totally in harmony and peace. It becomes more difficult when you rope in another 30, 40, 50, 500 people in a congregation to work together in harmony and peace. It means we have to learn to give. It means we have to learn to um, have patience to work with people who are flawed, even as they have to work with us who are flawed. We're all flawed. It's easy to look at somebody else's flaws and not at your own, but we're all flawed. So we have to work together to help each other get rid of our flaws. And that's why you have a congregation, to iron sharpen iron, to remind each other, to uh, set an example for each other, uh, so that we might all grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And we can't be here as individual Christians. We need to be here as a body working together, to be learning how to do that. You know, some people are just impatient by nature, or negative by nature, and they just as soon just go over here by themselves and forget about everybody else because I'm more comfortable this way. But no, we have to get outside our comfort levels and interact with one another and spend time with one another so that we might learn character and patience and the fruit of the Spirit. With interaction, you are challenged with those things. You know? Some people you interact better with and are more harmonious with than others. Some are just a pain in the back to you. You may be to them. <laughs> you know, both ways. But we're here to work together in harmony to be like the Father and the Son. And we should never forget that when we get a little icy with each other or a little upset or a little offended. And remember that the goal, as lined out in Scripture, is never offend anyone and never be offended. You got both of those working at the same time. Now, Christ got angry occasionally when he was here on this earth. And he gets angry on his throne in heaven. He's angry right now at us, at the nation, has been with the church. But it is a righteous anger based on correctness. We get angry because our pride is hurt. We get angry because our ego is tweaked a little or we're ignored or we're not treated as nice as we think we deserve or we get offended over little human things, and we're not to do that. You know, well, I have my feelings hurt. Well, well, boo-hoo, get over it. Uh, you hurt my feelings, boo-hoo. Well, i got to get over it, you know. Uh, God wants us to do that. Now, can we be righteously angry at what's going on in the world? Yeah. 
And can we pray that God fix it? Yeah, because we can't do anything about it. But we, at the same time, have to learn patience because, you know what? In the millennium, you know who's going to be inhabiting the earth? Those people that are out there right now, 10% of them or so or less, are going to come through all that. And they're going to have been somewhat humbled by it. But you know what? They won't be a bit converted. They won't understand anything about God except that He rained hell on earth on them. They'll remember that. And that they'd better bow their knees or else. And they better come to the Feast of Tabernacles or there'll be no rain. But see, they have to be taught these things. And we're going to have to be patient with them. We're going to have to go over things more than once with them to get them to grasp, comprehend, and then begin to live that. And you and I have learned how difficult that is. (laughs) But they'll be fresh out of the Holocaust with no training and have to be taught And we're going to have to be loving and kind and patient and all those things to deal with them. So that's what we're doing now is learning to be that. Now Paul talks about some of those things here in this letter. Maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but uh, he's talking about God's great love in giving us a wonderful goal, purpose, and destination in life and that he has called us ahead of the rest of the world. He was only writing to a small group of people in a big city here. He wasn't writing to the whole city of Ephesus, just the called out ones. And they were the ones who had been given special treatment by God to prepare to teach the rest of the world. That's what we're here for. So he's trying to impress upon them that they needed to be aware and take heed and follow through with these things with zeal and energy and strength. Verse 6, where I ended up last week, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Isn't the grace, the pardon, the opportunity He's given us a glorious thing? It is to lead to glorification. So he is talking it up, impressing them about what a wonderful thing it is that we have. Don't take it for granted. Wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted to the Father through Christ, the beloved Son of God. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Now he's only speaking of those who have been made aware of his sacrifice and what it meant. And who had been redeemed by that blood. You see, before you can be forgiven, he says repent and be baptized. The world don't do not understand does not understand what repentance is. It simply means change. You learn the truth and you change to match it. 
And what that means is you're being redeemed from the world which is going into the Holocaust. And His blood forgives your sins and redeems you from the world. That's all redemption is. It brings you back. If you take something to a pawn shop, you pawn it and they give you a little money. And then you go back and you do what? You pay money to redeem it. Now, we sold out to Satan. From Adam on down, we sold out to Satan. So Christ comes along and pays the debt and redeems us from Satan. Redeems us for the Father's use and for His use. That's what redemption means. He bought us with a price. His blood. Says it in so many words. We were bought with a price. So that now we belong to him. We're his, his slaves. That's what ownership is. He owns us. But he's a very kind slave driver, which is nice. But we owe our life to him. So, therefore, we are his. Bought with a price. In whom we have been redeemed through his blood. He paid the pawnbroker, Satan, through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, we have sinned a lot, have we not? Some people on earth have sinned more than others. Some have been in some terrible, egregious, life-ruining sins. Others have been in perhaps less of a depth of sin, if you will. But all sin is contrary to God, and all sin, whether it be a white lie or a black murder, is the same in the consequence, death. So, it doesn't matter how much we've sinned, Stalin, Hitler, you name it. It doesn't matter how much we've sinned. It's just that more grace is given. <laughs> but His blood is big enough to cover all those people that we look upon as the worst that lived. I don't know. All people have a different list about people that are the worst. And who should be on it and who shouldn't. Ancient and modern. But God in the Bible does not condemn anyone to eternal death by name. Esau is in danger unless he ultimately repents, but Esau was never converted. Uh, Judas was never converted. It was decided ahead of time, before Judas was ever called into the group, that he would be the one who betrayed Christ. And none of the apostles at that time of the Last Supper were converted. He told Peter, when you are converted, even Peter wasn't converted at that point. He was after Christ died. He repented of betraying him. Not, well, not betraying in the sense that Judas did, but running from him and won't admit. So it was a betrayal of sorts. 
three times before the rooster crowed. So those people were not at that time converted, and most people who've lived have not. So they've not been redeemed, and they've not repented and received the Holy Spirit, and they haven't received the riches of His grace. And if God is to be a fair God, they all have to have that opportunity, every last one of them. Otherwise, he's a respecter of persons in a wrong way. Through the riches of his grace. Now, only you can know the extent of the type of sin that you have perpetrated on earth. Everybody looks back on their history because everybody has a past. And they look at what they've done contrary to God. And that's what they repent of. Now, I'll submit to you that we're incomplete in that because none of us know how much we've sinned. We know some things that were obvious to us as sins. But there are things we do every day that are contrary to the thought thought process of our Father in Heaven. That we don't even realize or are not cognizant of, or it goes through our brain and we never even grab hold of it and say, wait a minute. Now, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Sometimes something will go through there that shouldn't go and it just goes on. But to God, it was the wrong manner of thinking, which is a sin. So, we don't know how much He forgives us of. We have no comprehension of the extent of our sin. But he knows, and his blood is big enough for however much it is. All he tells us to do is overcome. Uh, he, he, he knows. He knows and knows that he knows that you and I are not going to be perfect by the time we either die or our change come. Nobody has been and nobody ever will be but him. So he is, he is very aware of that. So he doesn't say, become you perfect in the sense that some people might think it. The Greek word there is more become mature. Mature spiritual human beings. Now even in maturity as a human being, you're not perfect. You know, you see a kid... And his training has just started, and he's a long way away. And then you reach adulthood, and you're still a long way away. And maybe you'll mature as time goes on and grow up someday. Um, We all have hopes for that. So all he tells us to do is overcome. He doesn't put a limit on it. He just says, you work toward being like I am. And the more you work at it, and you accomplish some of it, I'll credit you that. (laughs) That'll be on the good side if you overcome. And that's what he says there in Revelation 2 and 3 to every group. Overcome, and I'll grant you to sit in my kingdom. So, he doesn't say that we have to get to the point where we never make a mistake or sin. He knows it's impossible. He just wants us to make progress. As much as is possible. And then he makes the call. 
Did they overcome enough? Did they grow enough that they can be in my kingdom? Or did they not? And by the time our life comes to an end, he will have made a judgment one way or another on that. I'm just thankful he's kind and patient and loving and full of grace and forgiveness and all those things that I need. That's what it amounts to. I trust him because I see everything he did around me and up in the heavens. And whoever did that is somebody I can count on. There's somebody that knows how and knows when. He knows everything about it in order to have accomplished what he's done. And that's what Paul said in Romans 1. We see him and understand him by the things that he has made, by the creation around us. And therefore, we need to pay a lot of attention to the creation around us. It's easy to live in a city and pay attention to skyscrapers and manholes and streetlights and cars and not pay much attention to what God has made. What man has made, and we might live in the middle of, is a mess. And God even says he doesn't like cities. Woe to him that builds house to house and even field to field. He intended man to have room. Now, based on finances and what we could do here, I had that in mind. And I says, well, let's give everybody at least an acre. It's, it's a little elbow room anyway. may not be field to field yet, but it's the best we could do. And it's an improvement over where we were, for the most part. So we need to be working that direction. Look to his creation. Spend time looking at the night sky and the things you can see in the daytime. The animals, the plants. The clouds. The... I just love when the thunder and lightning comes and some rain and I can go out and look at the majesty and the glory and the power of God in the thunderstorm. It's just inspiring to me. And we need to be inspired by the things God does, not by the puny little things that man does, which are usually the wrong thing. And that helps us understand who our God is, that he could do these things. And he is all for us. He died for us, forgave us, and he has riches of grace. Grace is unmerited pardon, essentially. He gives us pardon that we don't deserve. And he's rich in grace. Verse 8, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He's prudent in the way he approaches us. He's patient with us. And he uses all wisdom in dealing with us. We often have the question come in our mind, is this a wise thing? Should I do this or should I do that? Which is the wisest choice here? Which would accomplish the most? for good, of what I'm thinking of doing. And when he looks at each of, and every one of us, you and me, he looks at us with his great wisdom. And he ponders. 
Okay, there you are, and that's what you're doing, and that's what you're thinking, and I need to tweak it a bit here. What's the wisest way to do this? Shall I encourage you? Shall I inspire you? Shall I spank you? What approach at this moment would be best in getting you toward my kingdom? So he uses his wisdom to consider the options and then decide what is going to do you the most good. And sometimes with every one of us, he'll do this with us and the next time he'll do that with us depending on what it's going to take to get us where he wants us to be. So he uses all wisdom and prudence. He doesn't do things safely and stupidly and haphazardly with us, but he's prudent in how he does it. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according for his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, now, the mystery of his will is that we be in his kingdom. Mystery of the ages, as Mr. Armstrong wrote it, that we are to become God. And religion does not understand that. As I've said before, the Catholics have a beatific vision where the best you can do is get a clearer view of God with less fog. The Protestants think you're going to go and sit around the throne of God or float on a pink cloud, but they don't grasp that they are here to become like God and someday to be God, as God is God. And he says in one place, I don't think where, that it isn't blasphemous to think of yourself as a candidate to be God. Because Christ is God, right? And it's very clear in the scripture, only kind can beget kind. Men cannot mate with cows or dogs. They cry sometimes, but it won't work. They have to do kind with kind in order to produce the same kind. And Christ is bound by this word and this example. He will not marry anybody who is not his kind and just like he is. His wife has to be just like him. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So we have to be glorified. And doesn't the Bible say very clearly, 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be glorified at his glory. Now that's blasphemous to most Christians. But he had revealed it to Paul and to Peter and James and John because they speak of it often. And he revealed it to Herbert Armstrong and not to the preachers of the world. See how incredibly God has blessed us? I didn't learn anything like that in the Methodist church as a kid. Nothing. They didn't teach me that. Here it is. Predestined to be redeemed, and he's abounding toward us, and he's given us a knowledge of our destination to become the bride of Christ, to become God as he is God. 
I can say that with full confidence that I know it is not blasphemy. And it is his good pleasure to do that. Remember that all the angels in heaven leap and shout for joy when one sinner is brought to repentance, baptized and received God's Holy Spirit. It makes those angels so happy they jump for joy. We don't even do that here. Somebody gets baptized, we'll shake their hand and give them a hug. Say congratulations, welcome. Maybe we ought to start jumping for joy. Singing a song of praise to God. (laughs) Well, we're not angels. But they have that kind of emotion and that kind of way of expressing themselves. Uh, we've seen it misused with the Pentecostals and others where they're roly-holing all over the hall and making strange noises and gibberish, uh, thinking they're in the spirit. No, they're not. Yeah, they're in the spirit, all right. the spirit of Satan, because that's confusion. But the spirit of God does not produce that. So the angels in heaven leap for joy and sing hosannas when somebody repents. Partly, I think, because it's such a rare occasion on this earth. They just can't believe it. All those billions of people there, one repented. Wow! Let's sing a song. Let's have a party. He's made known for his good pleasure. And there's another place, is it Peter, where he says, It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That will make him... As happy as he has ever been in his existence. He and the Father have existed forever. And they devised this plan to create human beings who sweat and stink. And put them through a process of understanding how the devil thinks and works. So that once we are glorified, we will never turn against him as Satan did. So we have to go through an awful lot down here to never want to come back to this again. And then when he is able to glorify us, we shed this human body, we shed this human carnality, and come to have the mind of God which thinks upward always instead of downward by nature. I can't Imagine my mind always thinking upward. It's, it's contrary to human experience. But that's the kind of mind we will have. His mind. And he will jump for joy. He will dance. Because we have become the object of his affection, the object of and goal and purpose that he had. You know, when athletes win a championship, oh, they go crazy. They jump up and down, they hug each other, they pour champagne all over each other, they just, oh, they party. Because they won a football championship. God is going to be winning a championship over Satan and glorifying human beings 
and it is going to give him more pleasure than he has ever experienced throughout eternity. Do we grasp that? That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. He's trying to broaden our thinking and help us understand better what it is that we have. Human beings don't want to die, bottom line, do they? No. They resist it, they fight it, they take drugs, they have operations, they do all kinds of things to live another six months or three years. In pain and in misery and everything else that goes along with that. They just don't want to die, generally. And they want peace. They don't want to fight. Most of them. We don't want to fight. We want peace. Leave me alone. Go away. Let me have peace here. We want peace. And we want security. We want to know that there's going to be food on the table today and tomorrow. We want to know that somebody's not going to break in their house and kill us in the middle of the night. And so people will spend an awful lot of money on security. We put locks on our doors, locks in our cars, locks on our locker, locks, lock, locks. Because we want security from harm. Now God promises us all those things. Go back and read them in Revelation 21. No more tears. No more fears. Everything will be good from then on. And he promises us that. And then we sit back and say, oh well. Oh well. I'll go to church. I'll fast. Will I pray during that fast? Will I pray diligently that God accomplish the purpose of the fast? Or do I just go hungry? You know? You can go, you can fast and just go hungry and probably not accomplish anything except lose a pound. That's about it. Or you can take advantage of that and make spiritual value out of it. Which is the purpose. So he's trying to Cause these people to listen up and be inspired. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when this, is, when this plan is accomplished, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So everything is going to be amalgamated into one body, one nation, one people, the God family, under Christ. And that's been the plan all along when the fullness of time is reached. And we're at the end of 6,000 years, almost. And the fullness of the rule of Satan is almost done. And he's going to give the Gentiles three and a half years to have their chance at it. And that's almost done. And then the mystery of his plan and purpose will be accomplished at the first resurrection. Because none of us have ever seen anybody glorified, including Christ or the Father. And then we're going to be glorified and see each other glorified and see the Father and the Son in glory. What a transformation! 
in the fullness of time. And we're close. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He, does, he has a goal, he has a purpose, and he acts according to his will, his counsel, his way of looking at things. An inheritance. You have to be a son of God in order to inherit Godship. We are co-heirs together with Christ. What has he inherited? He has inherited, having been there, but come here and lived a human life and died like we do. He was raised up and inherited the universe. He's back is an immortal, indestructible God. And the scripture says that we are co-heirs together with him. <laughs> I was co-heirs with my cousins of my grandfather's estate. We're all on the same level. We get the same reward. So much money from oil and gas companies a month. Not much, but a little. We're co-heirs together. I'm not better than my cousins, and they're not better than me. We all get the same. And we're co-heirs with Christ. We're going to get the same thing he got. We're going to be God with him and the Father. He's reminding them of this. And maybe helping them understand it better than they had. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. The ones he's calling now are the first ones to trust in Christ. The ones who come in the millennium will be the next group to trust in Christ. The ones in the great white throne judgment will be the third group to trust in Christ. But we're among the first. Now, there were some in the Old Testament who trusted in him, but they're included with us in the 144,000. So, they, Abraham, David, the few that are named there, are part of the same batch we are, the first batch. Millennium, second batch. Great White Throne Judgment is third batch. And that's the last batch. So, we are among those who first trusted in Christ. That's, that's an exciting thing to be among the very first. Isn't that what we always wanted when I was going through school? I wanted to be first in line. I wanted to be, have the highest grade, be first in the class. Uh, you know, I wanted to be first in the lunch line for sure. Those were, we want to be first. Here we are. We're in the first batch. That should be exciting to us. Not only that, but we'll always be above the others. Always be above. The others will come in. We'll come in as the wife. They'll come in as the children of the husband and wife. So we will always be in position, at least, above them. They'll be immortal, yes. They'll be part of the family. But we'll be above them in rank, if you will. So first... Now, we have a tougher time with Satan around than they will. But we also have a greater reward. 
in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth. There's a point where you begin to understand and learn the truths of God from the Bible itself. And as you learned, you began to read these promises and to begin to trust that you could be part of that. So it's a level that grows. Faith does not come automatically and God doesn't just pour a bunch in you. Trust is something that has to be built. You know, as human beings, we get jerked around, have our lunch money stolen or whatever, and we become distrustful, depending maybe on where we lived and who treated us how. But we come to the point that it's hard to trust people. And having that emotional and mindset makes it hard for us then to trust someone we haven't even seen. And that is something that has to grow over time. That as we obey Him, things improve. We see more. We understand more. We trust more. And as we look at the creation around us, as I described, and we see what He's done and how He's done it, there's someone I want to be around. There's somebody I can trust. Look at all the beauty he's made. Now there's somebody, yeah, let's get close to him. In whom you trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So you had to go through a period where you began to understand and most of us, to one degree or another, fought it because living this way is different than the way we've been living. And we have to make some adjustments, and some of them are pretty good adjustments. What we wear, what we eat, how we walk, what we say, what we think, those are some pretty big adjustments that we have to make. So we go through that process and then after we truly believed and we've accepted His way, whether we're living it perfectly or not, we are baptized, receive His Holy Spirit, and are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We now have His Spirit dwelling in us to help us toward fulfilling His promises to us of being in His kingdom. Now it says in Revelation and other places, that a certain amount will be sealed, 144,000. And don't go through and destroy until my seal, my sealing is finished, is accomplished. But that isn't something that all happens in the future. You're sealed after you accept His way and are baptized. You have the seal of God placed on you. In other words, Christ says, That one has accepted my blood, I have redeemed them from the world, and therefore my seal of approval is on that one. So you're already sealed. The only way you can not make it at this point is if you break the seal. <coughs> you know, they seal letters and things with sometimes. If nothing else, just glue. The king had his seal. 
but you just glue an envelope together and it's sealed. Now somebody at the other end breaks the seal. Now God seals us and he says, now don't break that. You stay in my book of life. I've sealed you as one of mine. I bought you, I paid for you, you accepted me, now you're mine. The sealing process is going to be finished when the 144,000th one is sealed. Now, in the meantime, it's possible to fall away, it's possible to rebel, it's possible to break the seal, and then he's going to have to go into the highway and byway and find somebody else to replace you. But why, why do that? Why not let that one out in the street, stay there, and be called in the millennium of the great white throne judgment? Since you're already sealed, why not keep it sealed and don't break it? These people were somewhat in danger of that because they had begun to take it for granted. And when you do, it's less important to you, and therefore you don't come through and do what you need to do. So he's reminding him, you're sealed. You've been glued down. You're in God's flock. You're in God's family. And he even said in one place, ye are God's. Once you accept his way and him, and you have been redeemed from this world, you are as good as God in his mind. Because he's going to see it through and put you there unless you rebel. So in his mind, you're there. So he'll do his part, you do your part, you'll be there. You're, you're almost there. Hang in there and finish the job. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is given as a down payment, earnest payment, and that has been paid, and since it's been paid, it will not be revoked. It's real. Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory, will be glorified, and that's when His possession is going to pay off. You know, He anticipates that. If you put money in the stock market, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you do it with the expectation, at least, of receiving something in return. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, because it's a stock market. But at least the analogy is there. You are investing in something, hoping that it has a return. Whether it's farmland or stock market, or whatever it is. You put your money up because you expect something to happen that is good. So when God gives you His Spirit and pays for you with the blood of Christ, He expects something good to happen. That's His anticipation. Just like you investing. Under the praise of His glory. 
He's expecting to glorify you. That's his anticipation. That's what he wants. That would be his good pleasure to do. Don't get in his way. Move forward. Be inspired. Be empowered. Be motivated by the fact that you won't be human anymore and you can never die and you'll never have another tear. You'll never have another problem. Everything will be good. It's beyond your grasp and mind to even understand that, being human. But that's what he says. And I trust him that that's what he's going to do with me. I just got to do my part. That's all he's urging them to do, is explaining God's part and then saying, be sure you do yours. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So he's saying, even as God has great anticipation for you, he says, as a minister to help you, teach you, encourage you, I feel the same way. Now, Paul may not have had as much of that anticipation as the Father and the Son do, because he was human, but he understood it enough that he could pass it along. And I'm thankful he did, because here it is. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now that's what's important. Wisdom and revelation, understanding of the correct knowledge of God. That is so important. If you've got to go, you're headed somewhere, you've got to have knowledge and understanding and revelation of how to get there. You might get it through a map, you might get it through your GPS, but one way or another, you need to know what you need to know to get where you're going. And you've got to have enough fuel to get there. And the same is true, spiritually speaking. So that's what he's talking about here, is be sure that you're filled with the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Well, that's all the time we have for today, and i got more than six verses, so there.